Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. Tea in Literature In this talk, Sue Wilson tells us how taking tea has been used in literature over the past couple of centuries. A bit of novel reading. We're going to look at several episodes where tea is drunk in books and I'm going to try and explore what the authors are doing in these incidents, why they've included these incidents and what they achieve. Any incident in a novel or a detail in a poem should be significant in some way, as well, of course, as being interesting and entertaining. In a novel, it can show us aspects of a person's character. It may help to push the plot forward by bringing characters together so that they can interact. This may be that one character can humiliate another. And what better than a tea party for showing someone's social ineptitude or awkwardness? It may be to comfort or enable someone to confide secrets or inadvertently reveal secrets without realising. It may heighten emotion. It can encourage matchmaking or help to cement friendships. Now, one thing that tea drinking with other people does do is make sure that those people stay put. However busy they may be, however much they want to be somewhere else, as long as the tea drinking's going on, they've got to stay there and the author can keep them there until they've achieved whatever he or she wants them to reveal or to do. And so authors have used tea drinking very successfully in their novels. Also, these incidents give us information about social history, how people of different classes lived, what possessions they had, what sort of cups and saucers they used, whether they had lots of implements on the table, or whether they just slurp their tea from a cracked beaker, which some of us perhaps do from time to time. It also shows us how they use tea as part of their social or everyday lives, and to some extent, how their society was organised. Tea drinking has been, since the 17th century, a large part of British life. And by the 18th century, when the first novels were published, was well established. It became more and more popular, particularly after taxes on it were reduced or removed altogether. I did think of trying to find examples in early novels, but that seemed too large a task. I really couldn't face reading Pamela or Clarissa, which I've never read in completion anyway. Also, I was given a really helpful book called Tea with Jane Austen, which gave me a a great start as far as Jane Austen was concerned. And I chose these classic novels partly because 
I knew I wanted to reread them and partly I thought you may be familiar with them. But before we get into the classics of English literature, do you remember an episode of Morse on TV where an opera singer is murdered, of course, in one of the Oxford colleges during an honorary degree ceremony? John Gielgud is a bigwig in this college and he's utterly outraged when the police order him to close the college despite it being time for the senior tea. He says with huge indignation and disbelief as only John Gielgud can, the senior tea must go on. And indeed so. But I'm sure that Morse prevailed and the tea did not. I must confess here that I haven't read any of Colin Dexter's Morse novels, so I can't say whether the incident is actually taken from the novel or not. I suspect not, and that it was included in this TV episode just to show off John Gielgud's skills. And so to Jane Austen, writing at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, by which tea drinking was deeply enshrined in British life of all classes. If you look at her few novels, you'll find many references to tea, so I'm really focusing on one. It is known that the Austins, in real life, bought some china from a large Wedgwood shop in London. Josiah Wedgwood was an astute businessman as well as a skilled potter and chemist, and also that the Austins used a lockable tea caddy to keep the expensive tea safe from servants. And we also know that they bought their tea from Twinings in London. Austin's love of tea is reflected in her novels. I must mention first, though, an episode that's not in the original text. In fact, I'm doing here exactly what, many years ago, I used to tell the kids I taught not to do. And that is, quote, scenes from films rather than the books that they were supposed to be studying. And they would try sometimes and say that, oh, Juliet here is wearing a blue dress and she stands under the olive tree and does this and that. And this is from the film, not the book. And I used to say, don't use the film, use the book. Anyway, this incident comes in the film of Pride and Prejudice, not the TV version, but the film starring Matthew McFadden and Kira Knightley, which I really like. In some ways, I prefer it to the Colin Firth version. Here, Charlotte Lucas has recently married the very unattractive Reverend Collins, and Elizabeth Bennet goes to visit her in her new home. And Elizabeth Bennet, as I'm sure you know, thought that this marriage would be a disaster. Anyway, Charlotte and she have tea in a parlour where Charlotte says they will not be interrupted as the room is for her own private use. This conversation that they have over tea in this little room reveals a great deal about Charlotte's marriage and her attitude to it. She knows its disadvantages, but is deeply thankful to have her own home and presumably she's negotiated some privacy from Mr Collins. She has acquired what Virginia Woolf called a room of one's own, and what a precious, precious thing that is. It also reveals much about the friendship between the two young women. Charlotte can confide in Elizabeth, however subtly, and Elizabeth is intelligent and alert enough 
to overcome her initial horror at such an unlikely marriage. It also reveals the kindness and sensitivity in Mr Collins that I do not think Jane Austen would have included in the novel, but it is implied in the film that he gave his wife this room that she could call completely her own. However, Jane Austen does include many tea-drinking incidents. Some of them occur in Sanditon, which was recently serialised on TV, and some people hated it because really there's very little of Jane Austen's novel and most of the incidents in the TV version were fabricated by the screenwriter. I didn't know Sanditon before, and it was interesting to read it and realise how short it was and how little happened. But there is a very detailed tea scene. Arthur, Diana and Susan Parker often fancy themselves ill, and they take many cures. When Charlotte, another Charlotte, visits them for tea, she's surprised to see several teapots on the tray and learns that they all drink different types of tea for different medical complaints. In fact, Arthur has cocoa instead and is utterly amazed that Charlotte happily accepts green tea. What, said he? Do you venture upon two dishes of strong green tea in one evening? What nerves you must have! How I envy you! Now, if I were to swallow only one such dish, what do you think its effect would be on me? Keep you awake, perhaps, all night, replied Charlotte. Oh, if that were all, he exclaimed. No, it acts on me like poison and would entirely take away the use of my right side before I had swallowed it five minutes. So there's green tea for you. (laughs) I've drunk many a cup of green tea and I've still got the use of my right side and I'm right-handed. This reveals so much about Arthur Parker and his obsession with his own health and contrasted with Charlotte's far more relaxed attitudes. The second novel we'll look at is Middlemarch by George Eliot. It was published in 1871, but was set earlier in 1831-2, when the Reform Act was imminent and early passenger railways were being built. One tea-drinking incident shows a crucial turning point in a couple's marriage. Dr Lydgate, a GP, has run up serious debts because of his wife's desire for a posh house and lots of possessions and setting up his practice and he's realising that his high hopes of his marriage to Rosamond were misguided. She too is becoming disillusioned. She calls for tea and so he has to sit down and talk. He takes this opportunity to tell her that they're seriously short of money. Her response is, what can I do, Tertius? and it becomes utterly apparent that she's not in any way prepared to economise and indeed does not expect that she should suffer any inconveniences at all. She makes it clear that she blames him and uses the opportunity to suggest that they leave the small town of Middlemarch, a move that she's secretly been hoping for right from the start. The conversation between them is quite long and utterly credible, I think confirming what we already know about each character and moving their relationship on 
into a far more unhappy phase. Rosamond does grudgingly offer some of her jewellery to sell, which Lydgate rejects. He knows that she is immovable, and he says, Now we have been united, Rosie, you should not leave me to myself in the first trouble that has come. Certainly not, said Rosamond. I shall do everything it becomes me to do. I.e. she's not going to do anything at all that she does not want to do. At the end of the chapter, the narrator tells us, His native warm-heartedness took a great deal of quenching, and it is part of manliness for a husband to feel keenly the fact that an inexperienced girl has got into trouble by marrying him. She received his kiss and returned it faintly, and in this way an appearance of accord was recovered for the time. But Lydgate could not help looking forward with dread to the inevitable future discussions about expenditure and the necessity for a complete change in their way of living. And this one incident where they drink tea together has pushed their marriage forwards and downwards in a very, very significant way. Lydgate has to start the slow process of coming to terms with this, that it is going to be very difficult. And later in the novel, he has to give up all hopes of doing useful medical research and takes a lucrative post dealing with rich patients in London, which is what Rosamond had wanted all along. The third author that I'm going to look at is Elizabeth Gaskell, a great favourite of mine. She was writing at the same time as George Eliot and also setting this book several decades earlier. She has a far wider canvas, certainly, than Jane Austen, reflecting her own far broader experience. In fact, I gave a talk a couple of years ago arguing that she is a greater national treasure than Jane Austen and you can imagine that that caused a bit of a flutter in the literary topics group. The tea incident I've chosen is in Cranford, an early work published in 1851-3 that wasn't planned as a novel, but was a series of shorter pieces set in a fictional town, but based very recognisably on Knotsford in Cheshire. It's set in an earlier decade, like Middlemarch, taking place just as the railway was arriving, this time in the early 1840s. Towards the end of the book, Miss Matty, one of the main characters, has become impoverished due to the failure of her bank, and her friends suggest that she sell tea to earn a little money. They feel that this is a genteel enough occupation for a lady of her status, that of Rector's daughter, and she agrees. The idea comes from Mary, a visiting friend, the narrator of the novel. She says... When the tea urn was brought in, and tea urn, note, not a teapot, a new thought came into my head. Why should not Miss Matty sell tea, be an agent to the East India Company, which apparently was what you had to do in order to sell tea? I could see no objections to this plan, while the advantages were many, always supposing that Miss Matty could get over the degradation of condescending to anything like trade. Tea was neither greasy nor sticky. Grease and stickiness being two of the qualities which Miss Matty could not endure. 
No shop window will be required. A small, genteel notification of her being licensed to sell tea would be, it is true, necessary. But I hope that it could be placed where no one could see it. <laughs> Neither was tea a heavy article, so as to tax Miss Matty's fragile strength. The only thing against my plan was the buying and selling involved. Well, this plan is put into effect, and Miss Matty's only objection is lack of confidence. Mary says, I could see it was rather a shock to her, not on account of any personal loss of gentility involved, but only because she distrusted her own powers of action in a new line of life, and would timidly have preferred a little more privation to any exertion for which she feared she was unfitted. Mary says Miss Matty was relieved that men did not buy tea and other social comment here, as she was rather afraid of them and would much have preferred to deal with children with whom she felt comfortable. Once installed in her parlour shop, this is where the shop was, in the parlour of the house, Miss Matty shows the same objections to green tea shown by Arthur Parker and that greatly reduces her income by giving sweets to children. This incident, like so many others, reveals the character of Miss Matty and her various supportive friends. It also forwards the plot and gives us interesting social information. Because it comes towards the end of the book, we already know Miss Matty and we like her and we sympathise with her. So that her financial predicament is important to us, we realise what a hurdle it is for her to try something new and we admire her for doing this. She may have seemed in some incidents to be a weak, immature character, enthralled to her late sister and father. But here, she does something positive and difficult for her, and her best qualities are further revealed to us, and we also see tea as a way of earning some money for a genteel lady. My next tea-drinking incident is the Mad Hatter's Tea Party in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. This was published in 1865, about the same time that Gaskell and Elliot were writing. In fact, it was the year that Gaskell unexpectedly died. I've never liked or understood this book, but the tea party is so famous that I thought I had to include it. Its chapter is called A Mad Tea Party. I'm sure there'd be many interpretations of this tea party, but I'm taking a simple view of it. It begins, There was a table set out for her under a tree in front of the house, and the March Hare and the Hatter were having tea at it. A Dormouse was sitting between them. Who else would you expect at a tea party? And the other two were using it as a cushion resting their elbows on it and talking over its head. They impolitely tell Alice that there's no room. They offer her wine and then tell her there isn't any and make uncomplimentary comments about her appearance, just what I'm sure we've all been taught not to do. In fact, there's a lot of bad behaviour in this scene, which is one reason why children enjoy it, I guess. The Hatter is insulting, he's arrogant, He's rude and cruel. 
and he makes nonsensical statements without considering anyone else around the tea table. Jane Austen's scenes can depict characters that are almost as objectionable, but she paints them far more subtly. However, her message is often similar, that conflict and dislike are part of social life. She shows us that such unpleasantness has to be modified under a veneer of politeness if people are to interact at all successfully. The Hatter does not follow such social rules, and his tea party is a chaotic disaster. As no one gets any tea or cake, the Dormouse is treated very cruelly, and Alice leaves in disgust. And the final book that I'm going to look at is The Go-Between by L.P. Hartley. Not as famous or highly praised as the others, but I was very impressed with it when I reread Omer and remembered how much I'd enjoyed it before. Poor Leo is so proud of his green suit that he's been given by a rich family, and he's taking messages between the big house and a much more lowly house where a farmer lives. And if you know the book, you'll know what all this is about. Well, poor L.P. Hartley is an author that's out of fashion now, and I think that's a pity. And I hope this may inspire some of you to reread this book as I did. It's about an elderly man, Leo, remembering his childhood and telling how one summer damaged him for life. He was from a genteel but impoverished home, a bit like Miss Matty. And after the death of his father, he goes to stay with a much richer school friend for the summer holidays of 1900. There are several tea parties in this book, all very different in atmosphere and purpose. The first are very briefly mentioned in Leo's diary. He was taken out from his boarding school for tea with friends' parents and writes, tea with C's pater and mater, very jolly. And then more sophisticated, jolly decent tea with L's people, muffins, scones, cakes and strawberry jam. He certainly got his priorities right with the food being the crucial part. It must have been a great treat for him worthy of diary entries, and these incidents are uncomplicated and part of normal social interaction for middle-class people like this with their sons at boarding school. Next tea that I'm going to look at is given to him by the farmer Ted Burgess, a very different incident and far more complex. Ted seems to befriend him kindly, but uses him as a messenger boy between himself and his secret mistress, the daughter of the big house where Leo is staying. It's a little bit like Lady Chatterley's lover with an affair between one of the ladies of the house and the servant, basically. Leo understands nothing about this sexual relationship and the novel is about his growing awareness of adult life and the lasting damage that this inflicts on him. Leo visits Ted and finds him cleaning his gun and the scene seems to be a rather lovely scene of a man and boy interacting perfectly. But of course, Ted had ulterior motives, and so does Leo, as he wants Ted to keep his promise to tell him about spooning, i.e. sex. However, Ted gives Leo tea and said, I'm just going to get some teacups, he added, and presently returned with them. 
I can see those teacups now, said Leo as an older man. They were deep and cream-coloured, with a plain gold line round the outside and inside at the bottom, worn by much stirring, a gold flower. And we've all seen faded pottery like that, haven't we, where the gold has come off or the pattern's got a bit faded with a lot of use. And Leo says rather snobbishly, I thought them rather common looking. It was odd seeing a man laying the table, though of course the footman did it at the hall. Ted and Leo then have rather an argument about Ted having promised to tell Leo about sex. And now he's embarrassed and does not want to do that. Leo tells us, my protest was drowned by a commotion in the scullery, <laughs> rattling, bubbling and hissing. The kettle's boiling over, exclaimed Ted, jumping up. He came back with the teapot in one hand and in the other a plain cake on a plate. My mouth watered. I would stay, but on condition. You haven't really told me, I said, what spooning is. Ted becomes very angry now and Leo realises that he's gone too far but has got Ted in a corner. Ted says, clear out of here quick or you'll be sorry. A deeply hurtful and ultimately disastrous event for poor Leo because he's set great store by his friendship with farmer Ted. We can sympathise with Ted, I'm sure, despite his poor treatment of the boy, but he was very cruel. The episode shows how the relationship between Ted and Leo is developing. It reveals both their characters and emphasises the difference in social class between Ted and the residents of the big house. This, of course, is why his relationship with Marion is so horrifying to her family and why the whole summer is so disastrous for Leo. The next tea party is much more conventional and everyone behaves politely, it being a normal daily social event where the growing tensions are kept well hidden just like a Jane Austen event in many ways. It's a deliberate contrast to the simple tea at Ted's cottage. Leo is made a fuss of and makes the group laugh when he chooses to have four lumps of sugar in his tea. That takes you back, doesn't it? He tells us tea was made a feature at Brandon. The cakes and sandwiches and jam we had. Ha! Half of it went back to the servants' hall. If I thought of Ted eating his lonely tea at his table scored with knife cots, it was to wonder how I ever came to be there. It had left a lurid feeling in my mind, as if it had been the cage of a wild animal. The decorous sounds we all made eating and drinking, the light chatter, the unemphatic voices, the small safe sounds of things being moved about and passed from hand to hand, the glitter of the trail of gold, and you can bet your life that this gold wasn't worn away on the cops and saucers. How captivating it all was. And yet I wouldn't have relished it all so much if I hadn't known the other. But Marion uses even this civilised tea event to try to get Leo to obey her again. And he agrees to take more letters to Ted but this time he refuses to engage with her and he goes off, writes a letter and asks his mother to take him home. 
So although mundane in many ways, this event is superbly written and is very revealing indeed. And it shows how these classy people often behave. And then there's no more tea until the utterly disastrous 13th birthday tea party for Leo near the end of the novel, during which Leo is totally humiliated and treated in a deeply cruel way from which he never recovers. Things have been going badly for him and Mrs Maudsley have begun to suspect him of secretly taking messages between her daughter Marion and Marion's highly unsuitable lover. The tea party starts well, but Marion fails to appear and all the hidden tensions and emotions rush to the surface. All at once, Mrs Maudley pushed her chair back and stood up. Her elbows were sticking out, her body was bent and trembling, and her face was unrecognisable. No, she said, we won't wait. I'm going to look for her. Leo, you know where she is. You shall show me the way. Poor Leo has to follow her, despite her husband's feeble protest, and tells us, I did not know that Mrs Maudley could run at all, but I could hardly keep up with her. She ran so fast. Her lilac paper bonnet was soon soaked through. It flapped dismally as she ran, then clung to her head, dark and transparent while the water dripped off the strings. And so for tea, she wears a paper bonnet, which is an interesting little detail. Is that what they did in 1900? Of course, they find Marion and Ted. It was then that we saw them together on the ground, the virgin and the water carrier, two bodies moving like one. I think I was more mystified than horrified. It was Mrs Maudley's repeated screams that frightened me and a shadow on the wall that opened and closed like an umbrella. I remember very little more, but somehow it got through to me while I was still at Brandon Hall that Ted Burgess had gone home and shot himself. And so that was with the gun that he'd been cleaning before he had tea with Leo though L.P. Hartley very cleverly put all the details together and moved the plot in all these incidents. So, not a good birthday tea at all for poor Leo, and he is damaged for life, and as an older man, he's obviously never recovered. He never married, he seems friendless, he seems totally damaged. Very, very sad. I think we sympathise with both sides in a way because they were only obeying their class and their upbringing and a relationship between the daughter of the house who did marry a Viscount and a, a tenant farmer would seem utterly shocking to them. But L.P. Hartley shows us the cruelty beneath their veneer of sophistication at the tea table. Well, I hope you've enjoyed looking at these tea parties. And if you read novels yourself, that you'll look at such events in novels, perhaps with new eyes. I certainly look at tea parties in a different way now. Thank you. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group.
Thank you very much for listening to this talk.